This guy's what you jeez, so sleepy. <laughs> no, they really went they really went high end coke route. Welcome to the Sand Trap, a podcast exploring the life and career of comedian Adam Sandler, one of the greatest comics of his generation. My name is Ben Castle. I'm Jeffrey Lehman. Mm, come on down. Today we are discussing one of Sandler's vaunted films, The Wedding Singer. Acclaimed even. Acclaimed even. <laughs> Esteemed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This one is on the top of so many people's lists of, since he's got such a big catalog, they say, ones you can skip, ones you can't miss. Yeah, this one's a favorite. <laughs> Tip top. Top yeah. five. Mm-hmm. Almost every day. This one has a different problem to cover than Madison does. This one's also highly watched and not even nostalgia poisoned. I think just cultural poisoned. You know what's happening. You're very used mm-hmm. to it. So it can be tough to come at it, not even at a mean critical angle, just at an angle where you're not affected by those things. Yeah. If you are unlucky enough to not like it, you have to kind of bite your tongue or just be like, well, guys, well, guys. <laughs> yeah. What's the synopsis for us? Adam Sandler plays Robbie Hart, a wedding singer. It takes place in 1985. He is slated to marry his high school sweetheart, Linda. And then Julia Sullivan played by Jewel Barrymore, is a waitress at the venue. And they kind of have a vavoom moment when they lock eyes. Can't do anything about that because Robbie Hart's getting married until he gets stood up at the altar. And so it's a great breakup movie and also a great wedding movie. This one is directed by Frank Karachi, one of Sandler's final four. Or f- what are we going to What are we? Fab four. Sandler's fab four of directors. It's like a lens filter. It's like a color, you know, because it's all Sandler movies. You put a different color in the lens with a Karachi one. You came up with Karachi's nickname, which is? Oh, yeah, The Weeper. The Weeper. Karachi does The Wedding Singer, The Water Boy, Click, Blended, Ridiculous Six. In between, he does his other movies, too, like Around the World in 80 Days and The Zookeeper and Here Comes the Boom, mm. two Kevin James ones. And James even was attracted to Karachi as a director because of Click. In Karachi, when he does a comedy with Sandler, it falls more flat. They're really wacky. They're one of the wackier ones. But he does direct two of the Drews. Karachi met Sandler all the way back at NYU. They were on the same floor. They were really goofy together. Karachi gets asked about the invented sense of humor they had for each other, which they describe as schnorf humor. (laughs) S-C-H-N-O-R-F humor. It started out by making these weird little noises. We would sit in a circle and try to be the most uninhibited. It was actually an acting exercise. Just being up late, being goofy, and building up a trust between two people. They have this really tight, goofy bond that when it it goes off the rails in a movie, doesn't really work. But when it's in a sentimental lens, really, really helps, I think. The grounding human component. Mm -hmm. Did you ever see Cannibal the Musical, Trey Parker and Matt Stone's student film? It's my favorite of their properties, but they have a hilarious song. It's called Spadoinkle. The sky is blue and all the leaves are green. My heart's as full as a baked potato. I think I know precisely what I mean. When I say it's a Spadoinkle day. When I say it's a happy-go-moinkle-y-lucky Spadoinkle-y. 
That's what Schnarf made me think of. <laughs> yeah, Schnarf humor. It's one of those student films that it's like high class and like hilarious, and like could be theatrical. Sandler and Karachi have a similar bond where their comfort allows them to be super goofy, but then Karachi knows Sandler so well that we get some edges of him that we have not seen yet in this movie. There's something about forging a sense of humor with people together, like the longer you go back being funnier together, it is like a secret language, Mm -hmm. which is kind of like, you know, you describe love as well. And then we have another familiar face, Tim Hurley. Mm -hmm. Wrote this. Yeah, but we don't see him. We don't see him. I wonder if we ever do. He, oh no, he comes in in this one. He's the bartender. Oh, you're freaking right. Symbols. We're trying to really build up this season as if Sandler knows what he's doing. It seems that way because every movie so far has been a different turn. Mm -hmm. But... Hurley, he points out that that's not the case. It seems like that's what he's doing, but that was not at all on purpose. Mm-hmm. This one, he does note that they wanted to embrace a feminine aspect. An emotional one. An emotional one. He says they never had love interests. All they had was boobs, basically. Yeah. So Drew Barrymore came to the rescue. Even in testing for other movies before Wedding Singer, the audience would dislike the movie more when Sandler wasn't on screen. So they knew that he had to keep holding the movie up. But with Drew, they could finally not have to show him the whole time and give her a lot of play to help balance out the movie more. Critics of his career could be like, you can just slouch your way into anything as like a white man. But I think it's also kind of like, have you ever played a Hobbit in a D&D campaign or something? Uh, I'm just not going to be self-conscious about this nerd stuff right now. <laughs> but they have this aspect called luck, at mm. least in 5e, where like you can re-roll any one you roll. I often think of that with Sandler, where it's like, he just has this like luck. It's almost a stat for him. That plays into our Sam manifesting of it, too. He speaks it into existence for himself, willingly or not. Mm-hmm. Oh, and so a bit about Drew. I think that she is the most standout of his women players. She's just a perfect match for his sweetheart undertone. She can make a brick wall feel actualized. Yeah, she's just heart of gold. <laughs> I don't know if I can get through it again. That clip of her on her own TV show. <laughs> Gonna need the tissues. Yeah. I'm so grateful that yeah. you came here. Oh, it's so sweet. Yeah, I love that. She's Pisces Queen. We have to give credit to her for this movie because she was the one that sought out Sandler. She was in a rougher part of her career. She was coming off of some duds. Right before this, she actually had done a wedding movie with Tamara Davis. Best men. Dean Kane, Andy Dick, Sean Patrick Flannery, Mitchell Whitfield, Luke Wilson, and Drew Barrymore. She's starting to stagnate in her own career of not having a lot of other places to go as a child star she had a lot of trouble in hollywood she had a sense that her and sandler could really click and have this classic hollywood chemistry so she met with them and she her hair was dyed a different color and she just didn't look her best (laughs) she acknowledged you gotta look past all this and referenced her get up and her demeanor yeah it was really part of the turnaround because after this she gets in charlie's angels and leaning roles and yeah it helped her when you find these premises you think no way it's that simple but hurley he confirms that sandler was thinking hey i really want to do a movie where a wedding singer falls in love <laughs> that was his, he had that premise already baked in and then hurley he was listening to the radio and heard an all i love the 80s and he thought, what if we set it in the 1980s and then we make it like this genre picture? I did want to drop Carrie Fisher did a rewrite of this in 1996. She was a script doctor for a lot of things like Hook, Lethal Weapon 3. It was throughout the 90s. I found the PDF copy with her on it. And then it said additional revisions by Judd Apatow. That's the second Apatow revision we've run into. What was a major difference you noticed from the Fisher edits to what it was before? Apatow, I could see he probably just cleared up some of the vehicles for humor. I could mm-hmm. see him knowing how to do that. She's usually brought in for women characters like to 
brush them up and it doesn't like attribute anything it's only speculation to think like this must be this person this must be because it was still Hurley's and Sandler's but regardless of who wrote it the first thing I noticed was all the songs were completely different which makes sense like clearing lights and sings it started with Rock Lobster instead of You Spin Me Round they tried to get Julia by the Beatles that must have been twice their budget trying to get that but you know those are like placeholders and scripts almost every line was changed once they got to set it seemed the skeleton was there the structure the scenes even who's speaking but the actual text changed but there are a lot of aspects of screenwriting and structure was almost exactly the same there are only a few cut scenes oh there was a cut character that i thought this might have been written for farley he was like a worker at a guitar center like where sandler was going to work at like as a guitar lessons kind of and he only came in for a few things it didn't do anything for character or anything it was just like this is probably like a farley or somebody yeah hmm. he was real blustering <laughs> yeah there is baggage around Sandler and his style, and I think a lot of it has to do with the formulaic quality we brought up a little bit. I think it's important to note that there are people coming in to rewrite. Oh, yeah, always. Hollywood's a big machine, and it's like uh, Chaplin in modern times going through the gears. You know, it's like that Sandler always just like keeping his facade, but every single movie has a different aspect to it. Yeah. One of the big wrestling questions of the pod is, how do you nail that perfect line between having a signature and not overusing it? Mm a style that's recognizable and not letting it go stale after 30 years. You can't escape that past. Your past starts to influence whatever you put out more and more. Yeah, it was, I believe, Truffaut. This is quoting from another who was quoting Truffaut, but said that every film is a response to your last one you made. Yeah, it becomes difficult. I think the similarity between all this stuff was that everybody involved wanted to make a movie about love. Absolutely. No cynicism was brought to this movie. Mm -hmm. Sandler wanted to make a movie about being in love. Karachi had recently come out of a bad breakup. So he was kind of still fresh from that, but wanted to explore it a little bit. Drew, we know, hard on the sleeve, wanted to really bring something special to create a bond that could be noticeable with her and Sandler. There was a weird trend in the 90s of wedding movies. There's Four Weddings and Funeral, Father of the Bride, My Best Friend's Wedding, Runaway Bride. It just happened more and more. The website The Knot was formed, which was like the cut for weddings. Yeah, where'd you fall on that? You did a lot more of this wedding stuff. You got a little interested at this. I was a little obsessed. <laughs> I even watched Much Ado About Nothing. He did invent the ending with a wedding thing. The only one I found that I actually liked was My Best Friend's Wedding. Ready? Okay. Wishing and hoping and thinking and praying. Which I found was the most consequential because I was 97 and this is 98. I think one thing we noticed, there weren't a lot of two shots. There weren't a lot of shots where they were both in frame, which is where I wanted the chemistry to really come out. So when the intro starts and we get into the movie, it's already different in tone because we're so close to everybody. That's immediately what I felt different on. Everyone's close, intimate. They're cutting away to every single person to get a good reaction shot. And you think that'll only last for the intro, but it lasts the entire movie. Yeah, because you found that when you were trying to cut together the promo. Yeah, yeah. I found it out when I was editing the promo. I was like, damn, there's not a lot of action in the wide. The benefit of that was it front and centered his dewy eyes. I think that's why it is vaunted. It's why it is lasting. That paired with Drew's just sweetheart. It isn't as clear the tears in her eyes, but she's always just got the, oh, look. Hey. Hey. I was wondering what happened to you. Did everybody leave? Pretty much, except for a few cops that are still interviewing some witnesses. One of the vaunted covert operations, too. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to vaunt anybody, it's going to be covert. That's a golden silence pistol. <laughs> you hit two cones. Those could have been people. Those could have been guests at her wedding. They were cones. For as um, dewy as this movie is, we start to see a trend that I really dislike that Sandler leans on too much. I brought it up in Gilmore, 
whatever the reasoning for what he's doing is, it's the most endearing thing you could possibly imagine. Mm-hmm. They give him such a part of gold. You forgive him for any other quality that he has, which is usually his anger. Mm-hmm. They have him teaching piano for a elderly woman's 50th anniversary for her husband. Mm-hmm. He never gets paid. He holds me. We find out that he's an orphan. His Both his parents died yeah. when he was in third grade. It felt like a late Marvel eye rolly thing, like an origin story. Oh, his parents died and that's why he wants to get married? Yes. Doesn't everyone want to get married? Yeah, it felt is that yeah. like that's like what every one of these films is predicated on. But it was just in, yeah weird that they had to put that in there. Been wanting to get married since the third grade. It makes sense. That's when mom and dad died. He wants to start a family of his own. That's something to keep in mind as we go through of why I think these start to degrade in value. They keep him as this two dimensional person. So we don't have to bring it up later. This is, I think, my favorite joke in the movie. Freddy Krueger in the kitchen scene wasn't in the script. It's because New Line produced it, and that's like their big property. That's like the first films they made, which I just thought was a nice Easter egg, but I did think it was just so funny where... Oh, thanks, Freddy Krueger. That's not nice. Very creative, though. Go back to the boiler room. That is really funny. That's such a weird studio thing they'll do. Yeah, whatever you can clear the rights for, yeah. Yeah, as we're going through, it's structured like you'd expect a romantic comedy to be. Mm-hmm. Pretty note for note. Note for note. And then they fill in the jokes. Fill it in with these jokes that work best when it's with Sandler and Drew. It rests a lot on the period piece, nature of 1985. The colors are like a wild berry Pop-Tart. It goes overboard with the references by the end. It's called a CD player. It cost me like 700 bucks, but the sound quality is outstanding. Come on, Andy, move your ass! Hang on, huh? I'm watching those. I think JR might be dead or something. They shot him. Hey, do you like Flock of Seagulls? I can see you do. But for the most part, I think it's a good period piece movie. Hurley, he mentions that. Everyone thought the 80s weren't that far away, but they really were compared to what we were already doing in the 90s. So they wanted to point that out a bit. It'd be if we made a movie about 2008. All the stuff that's around those 2000s is so muted and sad. Social Network, Lady Bird. Forgetting Sarah Marshall. That's an icon. Hey, let's go surfing. Come on. Everybody's learning how. Come on. Uh, the weather outside is weather. Made today. I guess that's the big short. <laughs> Here's Margot Robbie in a bubble bath to explain. Is that the first iPhone? <laughs> I guess if we talk about Rosie with the piano lessons, she's kind of the idol of marriage, like where it's like 50 years. How do you do it? He goes to her house, right? Where is the bubby? Where is the husband? You don't meet him until later and it's like, that's why you guys are working. Certainly like it's a class thing. They can afford separate houses or whatever. Maybe he goes to In-N-Out during that hour. That's how it makes it work. I wish they would have underlined that. <laughs> yeah, and maybe because you're right. They're old enough to where they should be retired. So where the fuck would he be? Oh my God, maybe he's in his like balsa wood basement. That's, oh, you know, it could be yeah. anything. <laughs> yeah, he's probably with the boys. Me and the boys. Well, I guess I want to briefly touch on Buscemi, another great role. This is his second one. It's his follow-up to Billy Madison. Somehow he gets more in Sandler movies than even his other like Coen Brothers ones where it's like, these he can really let loose with like the physical comedy and like really be like a complete buffoon. Because Harold, you know, he's always been the dependable one. And I've always been the screwed up one. Right, Dad? Why can't you be more like your brother? Uh, Harold would never beat up his landlord. He has a great job in this. And we have another addition to the Sandler stable, Peter Dante. Long haired, good looking, chiseled dude. What was this, me? I wasn't paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. This guy will show up in movies of Sandler's from here on out. You were the one who recognized him and I didn't recognize him so much. You had to kind of like underline. It took me a while. He looked like Anthony Kiedis to me. For what it's worth. (laughs) He comes into play through yet another 
Gary Shanley connection. Hey now, Hank. That's a sentence. No. He was working as a production assistant. Shanley often had these basketball games where he would invite all these people over, and it was kind of a zen, relaxing, venting time. So not everyone was invited, but Peter met Sandler there. Sandler recognized his West Hartford accent. They bonded off of that, and then he loved his vibe, and he brought him onto these sets of movies, and he's been in movies of his ever since. So you mentioned the soundtrack earlier, how they had all these different songs. Watching it again, I think that's one of the best parts of the movie, that it's a jukebox movie of these songs that have become synonymous with it. We've been talking the Smiths my whole life. <laughs> and then, of course, you spin me around and like those other early cheesy 80s like Love Stinks. There's even like a vitamin string quartet rendition of Don't Stop Believin' at Sandler's Wedding. So it was a bad note. And then Love My Way by the Psychedelic Furs, which, you know, completely copped by Call Me By Your Name. So it has this nice mix of familiar, but not top, top 80s hits. And then these little alty in your feelings ones. Yeah, real good, like, lyrical, actual great love songs. Not that the top ones can't be great love songs, but, you know, other great love songs. And then there was uh, Culture Club's Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? Give me time. That actress, Alexis Arquette. Mm -hmm. Part of the big Arquette family. Very important part, I think, especially of the pod. Our little through line we're trying to build on, which is the men dresses as women funny thing. But this one's so interesting because Alexis transitions later in life. They kind of play on that. Her femininity is really outspoken. So they kind of have some jokes here, but you never feel like they're punching down because Alexis has such a presence that you're like, this doesn't affect her at all. Yeah, the joke is never on her. And like the people who are like, you suck, or is because it's like. Yeah, when they restart it, yes. Give me time. She paid respect to Boy George in a nice way that when he saw the movie, he thought it was very funny. I wanted to find that documentary of hers, She's My Brother, Alexis Arquette, but it's not available anywhere except on a DVD. So I might save that for our season wrap-up. It's something that came after the script that I read, and probably a casting like, we can do this. Really cool. Liked her a lot in this movie. Mm -hmm. That ruled. Which ties, ties back into the last aspect of this soundtrack, which is Sandler's own music. I'll get you medicine when your tummy aches. Build you a fire if the furnace breaks so it could be so you get this nice edge of like this sweet sweetness of him crackling his voice and then that somebody kill me when i wrote this song i was listening to the cure a lot so it's the perfect line between comedic and actually like hell yeah fucking right man like <laughs> and i think he plays into the like convention of the outro just as also an extension of punchline oh somebody kill me please somebody kill me please that's the heightening he's using almost like key in melody as like a heightening. I'm on my knees. Pretty please kill me. Simple lyrics that are brave. <laughs> it's the most remedial example. Uh, soft to loud. It's true. Soft, loud, screaming. It's That's his encapsulation of his character all the time in movies. Humanized by Karachi framing him so nicely. Absolutely. But it all was bullshit. It was a The only other one that kind of matches it is on Mitski's album Puberty 2. There's one called My Body's Made of Crushed Little Stars. Mm. One of my favorite songs. And it's just, uh, yeah, that ends up with her being like... Kill me, 
I liked it. <laughs> I'm sure Julie is actually thinking in the audience when Sandler's playing somebody coming easy. Glenn never feels sad. He's only a dick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's that, and that's that uh, our boy problem where yeah. you're like, they feel at least, but then you, sometimes they're manipulative mm-hmm. on top of that. Male manipulator. We got it, baby. Weezer, Neutral Milk Hotel, which came out a week before this movie. Actually, only like three oh. days. <laughs> and at the end, it it's important to note why Billy Idol is actually in the movie. Billy Idol said that his son loves Sandler movies and he knew he would see this movie anyway, so he thought, might as well just be in the movie myself. Yeah. Fancy cars, CD players, even women are possessions to him. All willing participants here. Everybody wanted to be involved, and that's a great part at the end when he's telling his tale and they all go, No way! I didn't want to go plot point by plot point because we would just get wrapped up in all the nice details of it. Mm -hmm. So are there any other big highlights of things that you thought were good? The one I was going to mention that actually ended up being references why this could become a musical was the scene where he goes back to see Julia and he looks up into her window and she's smiling in the mirror with her wedding dress only because she's saying his last name. Mm -hmm. That's one of the best parts for me in the movie. It really does accentuate both of their strengths very well. That's a good use of that split screen where you don't get a two shot but you get individuals back and forth i think my actual favorite underlined song when they cut to hungry heart by bruce springsteen in that part so good i was listening for three weeks after i watched this again mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah that's right where tim hurley he makes a cameo he's the bartender yeah here drink that here robbie we get a cameo by steve brill one of the fab four directors oh man i heard what happened to you at your wedding that was so cold you must have felt like shit no felt really good thanks for bringing it up man you know my parents died when i was 10 would you like to talk about that why would we want to talk about that i don't know steve brill does hubie nikki kind of higher concept ones or at least gother concept (laughs) who also has been with him since the going overboard days despite the weddingness of it which i know you kind of jock a little bit with i jock it baby despite that i think this one still has a good rewatch value everyone has one of those movies for some reason, it's wedding movies for me. It feels a little propaganda-y, especially the late 90s ones. I always replace it with, what if we were talking about the military? Like, what if this was like, okay, I'm just desperate to join, but I can't. You yeah, know? everyone is sad because they haven't joined this thing yet. It's something that people put a lot of expectation on and a lot of pressure, and I think that it can lead to strife and stress in relationships between two people who love each other that's undue. I mean, I'm in for a promise. I love a promise. I'm not ragging on the promise. (laughs) This one is something that everyone will cite back to as why he's not as good anymore. Or Mm -hmm. they wish he could do something like this again, blah, blah, blah. Yep. If you don't like the later ones, you point back to it. It's a pillar of salt. Commercially even. This one's out of this world. Yeah. It came out February 13th, the week after in the airplane over the sea or the week of. (laughs) It's an 18 mil budget. Same as Happy, but it makes 80.2 million domestic, 123 million worldwide. It about doubles Happy Gilmore. That's just part of why he gets to ride the wave of Hollywood through all of these different technical shifts and like medium shifts through Netflix, through from video store to franchise. He ends up just having an exponential rise. It is one of those, if you don't like one aspect, you like another, because obviously I love the soundtrack. You know, you can listen for yes. the music, you can watch the colors, you can watch your favorites. It opened number two, even though it did pretty well, but it, that's because number one is Titanic. It was number one from like December 19th of the last year to March Mm. 27th. That's just one of those crazy runs. It was in theaters from December of 97 to September 
of 98. I just think that's crazy. And then it's a lot of last year's Oscar stuff. Goodwill Hunting's number four. Mm. Sphere is number three. That's a sci-fi movie I like where they go under the sea and they find an alien that can make your worst fears come true. Queen Latifah gets attacked by jellyfish. <laughs> That's not a franchise. Rally, I think I've seen that clip of her. Yeah, it's almost an art house. Yeah, because they cut to inside the kitchen where the other people are safe and you see the jellyfish flood the porthole. It's a, I like that movie. Yeah, I like <laughs> Queen Latifah too, so that's a good one. Number nine all the way down here is Blues Brothers 2000, the ill-fated sequel to our SNL Stinky. boys. Yeah. With Jim, who we love on Twitter. Sweetheart on Twitter. Anything that has 2,000 at the end, not one of them has done well. Pokemon the movie, maybe. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, for real. You're right. Oh, that's one of those. I'm sure when my mom was taking me, she's like, this movie sucks. Poor mom. No farts. It's because it's emotional. They could have gotten away with it, though. I fart when I cry. I know. It's tough not to. It's tough not to. <laughs> so the count remains the same. Hey, 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 hey. Pull my finger. Pull my finger. My God. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Remember to rate and review and subscribe us. Apple Podcasts. Any other podcast platform. Yeah. I'm on my knees. <laughs> something in here just for you listener ben i've been trying not to let on but i I, i'm one of the people who doesn't like the movie um and i know a lot of you guys do but if any of you guys are out there who don't representation matters i'm here but but i love the guy i love you guys too i just it doesn't pay me to fake it i can find things i like about anything you know, if he's going to take the time to go to the bathroom, I might as well have a, a confession time, right? I think the colors are garish.